Well, welcome to Palm Sunday and to um, our worship service, and we're glad that you're here. Um, my all-time favorite service of the year is this coming Friday, the Good Good Friday service that we do here at Christ the King. And because of the size of our church and whatnot, we've combined uh, the Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday into one service. Very beautiful. Only lasts an hour. Uh, there's no preaching. Thanks be to God. Uh, it just, <laughs> it's just reading and, uh, uh, you know, a, a liturgy that is quite beautiful and it is non-threatening. So if you have uh, people in your life, you say, you know, come for this hour. Uh, it only lasts one hour, so it's not a long, it's not tedious. Come for that hour. It is a beautiful service, very solemn. It's a great way to prepare your heart uh, for uh, Easter Sunday. And so we uh, really urge you to come if you can. Now, we've been taking a look at the book of Romans. We're going to be, I'll be preaching through Romans probably the rest of the year. Uh, Dawson's going to be preaching intermittently, and we may even have some other guests and so that will come in and, and break the, uh, uh, the pattern. But I'll stay in Romans throughout the year. And I invite you to take your bulletin and read, uh, we're going to read the, the passage today, Romans 3. This is the same passage we've looked at last week, and I'll probably spend one more week. I'm, my Easter ser- sermon is going to be on this text, where I'm going to try to pull everything together, uh, which I think Paul does in the book of Romans, to explain what it is uh, that the gospel really means to us and to this world. So now hear God's word. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of the glorious standard of God. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then? that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't He also the God of the Gentiles? Of course He is. There is only one God, and He makes people right with Himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, 
Does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so it's Palm Sunday. Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem on that Sunday and be recognized as king of Israel when he had entered Jerusalem any number of times? If you read the gospel, he was back and forth. Why that time? Why was that time different? And it was because Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem at that time not just as a visiting prophet or teacher, a proclaimer of righteousness and the goodness of God and all of that. No. He was coming as the king. That was his destiny. And that is the meaning of euangelion, the meaning of gospel. Gospel means announcement. It means news. It's good news. It's news that God has sent his Messiah, his king, to come and put down evil, destroy death and hell and the grave, and raise up the kingdom of God for all people everywhere, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. This is the gospel. This is what it means for Jesus to have come and lived and died among us. So when he entered Jerusalem on that Sunday, he was coming as king. And he would bring, as the scripture says, in his wings, the son of righteousness would rise and bring with him this brightness of freedom and life and salvation. Salvation is not just going to heaven, as great as that is. Salvation is to touch every sphere of your life, everything in your life. And so... We talked last week a little bit about what is faith. I don't think anything in the Christian life or even in other religions, it doesn't really matter. Faith has become something we don't really understand. It, it's it's a, a commodity sort of. It's a, a feeling. It's subjective. It's something that you have inside that you're trying to, to get out and do and it's something that you have in your possession. And I told you that faith is not a subjective feeling. It's not an attitude of resignation, just, well, I guess I'll believe, I'll just give in. It's not blind acceptance. Well, I don't know the answer to this, so I'll just have faith. It's none of those things. It's no work. It is no effort of any kind. But rather, it is the source. Faith is the source the fountainhead, the orientation of your entire life. As Paul said in 117 of this book, he said, the just shall live by faith. In other words, faith is not a a thing that you have that you're stretching out trying to get connected to something or some power that you've got. It is you sitting back and relying on someone else. It's a reorientation of the entire life. A singular orientation. In other words, nothing can come and visit that relationship. There's no third party that can come in. It's you and God being bound together in unity through His Son by the power, the living power every day of your life of the Holy Spirit. 
the just shall live by faith. Faith in God the Father, by the person and work of His Son, through the now and ever-present Holy Spirit in our lives. So I was... I wrote this down yesterday. See if you like this. I'm quoting myself. See, I'm getting confident now in my old age. Hey, I don't have to quote Calvin. I'll just quote me. If faith is something that you need more of, listen, if faith is something you need more of, then like money, you're never going to have enough. Faith is not a commodity. It's a choice. It's a decision of yours toward God through His Son. It's reorienting yourself and saying, I have nothing. My faith is even not that great. Uh, you know, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. I, I don't know. But the object of my faith is absolutely crystal, stellar, strong, powerful. He never lies. He never lets us down. He never fails. And if I will just reach out with the one commentator said with a palsy, palsied and weak hand that is all withered and barely, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, then all that he is comes to me. Not measured on my faith, but measured by him. All of it comes to me. It's not about your faith, needing more or better faith or uh, stronger. I wish I could have more faith like our pastor. I wish I could have more faith like Mother Teresa. I wish I had a better kind of faith. Oh, I would really like to have faith. You have faith. You believe. When you get in your car in the morning, you start. When you believe it's going to start. And when you put in your app for Starbucks for your triple cappuccino, three shots or whatever, you believe that when you get there, it's going to be ready. You have plenty of faith. Don't kid yourself. So let me remind you what Horatius burned. I hope you, you know, I have this, this is burned so hard and so deeply into my heart that I can't even think about anything outside, when it comes to faith, outside of this. Listen. The strength or kind of faith required is nowhere stated. The Holy Spirit has said nothing as to quantity or quality on which so many dwell and over which they stumble, remaining all their days in darkness and uncertainty. Faith is simply in believing, feeble as our faith may be that we are invested with this righteousness. For faith is no work, nor merit, nor effort, but the cessation or the ceasing of all these and the acceptance in their place. Listen to this. Of what another has done. Done completely and forever. The simplest, feeblest kind of faith suffices. For it is not the excellence of our faith that does anything for us. But the excellence of Him who suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that He 
might bring us to God. The day that you do that, the day you choose to make that man, Jesus Christ, the center, that he fills your windshield, even when you're in the midst of your worst sin, your worst day, Paul is going to say in a couple chapters, God, on that worst day, God demonstrated his love towards us in this, that he gave us his son. Every day after that is not as bad as that first day. He commended, He demonstrates His love. He wants you. And He wants to invest you with His righteousness. And all the faith in the world is not because Isaiah said in chapter 44, all the faith in the world is not going to make that block of wood a God. Because you're shaping it with your hands and you're going to carve some of it into a God and some of it you're going to put in the fire so you can be warm and with the rest of it you're going to cook your food and eat. And then he says in Hebrew, actually it's, it's, a, it's a derogatory, he says, aren't you blockheads? Are you going to worship a block of wood? No, you're worshiping, you have come to the ever-living God who's not holding His nose. And saying, oh, I guess I'll just accept Chuck. You know, he's he down there groveling. He feels really bad today. No, when he looks at me and I'm groveling, he sees his son there with me. I'm invested because I'm trusting in him. I'm not trusting in me. I've thrown that away. I don't want that. And self-righteousness is so pernicious. It's so... Rigorous. It's so hard in our life that we can't hardly get away from it. So as, uh, as Vic said in Sunday school this morning, you've got to live in this gospel renewal cycle where you're reminding yourself every day. Why do you think he calls us together one day on Sunday? You can't worship over the internet. That was an accommodation. You need to be in with God's people. You need to look around and be able to see the pain and the heartache in other people's lives or maybe the joy in their faces. You need to experience that unity that Jesus gave to us among one another and with each other. Weeping with those that weep. Rejoicing with those that rejoice. So let's talk. We talked about faith. And I hope if you have any questions about faith, come and see me or Dawson or uh, any one of our elders or women's council. Anybody that's been around our church can explain this to you. That faith is not something that you do. It's who you're putting that faith in. Is it in Jesus or is it in something else or somebody else? And that's where Paul is going with righteousness. What is it? Think about this. What is it that justifies you or makes you worth anything? Because you're nice, because you're good, because you're a Republican or a Democrat, because you're an American or not, or you're this or that. We have a million of that you got this much money in the bank or you're married to this person. We have millions of reasons where we get our core worth and value. And Paul has gone to extreme lengths to show you all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't get away from this, this reality that there's a stain in our souls that we cannot deal with. And he's made that abundantly clear. So what is righteousness? It's what 
Well, let's talk about it. We are made right. The phrase in Greek is the righteousness of God. It uses a word that is a marvelous word, dikaosune, which means to be made right with God, to be in a right relationship with Him, a right standing, a right status, that whatever was wrong is now made right, and it is made right by faith apart from the law. And a lot of people take this to say, oh, goody, goody, I can just behave any way I want now because I'm, you know, I can just go crazy with sin. I can sin up a storm. That just simply means you don't understand what he's talking. You got no clue. And he will, in a rabbi sort of way for the next bunch of chapters, explain in excruciating detail why you must obey the law. And that will be, a, that will be the, the, the proof of the pudding that something has changed in you. That there's an orientation change, difference. But now look at verses 21 and 22. This is from the New Living Translation. And it's a, it's a very loose paraphrase, but I'm checking it carefully against the originals and looking at the ESV and other translations to make sure that we're tracking And it's very good. And so it's clear to understand. That's why I chose it. But now God has shown us a way to be made right. That's the word, dikaosune. With Him, without or apart from the requirements of the law as promised in the Moses and the prophets. We are made right by placing our faith. That's the orientation. That's turning and looking at Christ. In other words, He's filling your windshield, not yourself not your works, not your church membership or whatever. Whatever you want to put in the windshield, he's saying not that. And that's true for everyone who believes. No matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. You see, God is now, uh, he's, he's not replacing Israel with the church. That's a heresy. It's called replacement theory. And although I've been accused of being a replacement theorist by good friends, <laughs> said, you're a heretic. No, I don't believe that the church replaces Israel. What I believe is Jesus replaced Israel. He's the true Israel. And that we all become Israel in Him by, uni- by unifying ourselves with Him. It's absolutely marvelous. It's brilliant. It's stunning what He has done for humanity. He's made of all nations one people without mushing us all down and making us all the same because we're not marvelous. In the Old Testament, there are three spheres of law. Let's do a little theology. Three spheres of law that were codified in the Mosaic, the corpus of Mosaic law, case law. One of them was civil. One had to do with civil In other words, you put a parapet upon your roof so that nobody would fall off. Why? Because you don't want people to be in danger. They're made in the image of God. So therefore, every house had to have a parapet on it uh, so that nobody would get hurt. Uh, These civil laws also had to have to do with your livestock. You know, if you had an ox who was uh, misbehaved himself and he was goring people and all that, you might have to kill that ox. Not because he committed murder, but because he was dangerous. Civil law. Then there was ceremonial law, bringing sacrifices and 
the rite of circumcision and Passover and all of these things, ceremonial. Then there was the moral law, which was codified in the Ten Commandments. And all three of these laws were to be kept without exception and without any variation, scrupulously kept. And of course, you read in your Bible, they never could keep any of them right. They never could get them right. They would try. They would even be sincere and try. And they still couldn't do it. But with Jesus, theologians, especially Christian theologians, whether you're um, a Catholic or Orthodox or um, Protestant of some one variety of any of the major divisions of Christianity, all agree that the civil and ceremonial were abrogated in Christ. The moral remains. We are still obliged to keep God's moral law because it reflects who He is. It's not an accommodation like the civil and ceremonial was so that we could live in peace and not kill each other like brutes. We Turn on your news. We're still doing that. 21st century. Only we're doing it on a, you know, industrial scale. Unbelievable. None of those laws could make us right. Not even the moral law. If you could have kept the moral law, the Old Testament said, keep my law, you will live. Go ahead. Keep it. And you will live. But we can't keep the moral law. We know. The only thing the moral law, and Paul has already talked about this in chapters 1 and 2, he's explained that the moral law is serving a function. It's condemning us. It's, it's putting us in the grave. We haven't got a chance. There is no escaping. Not for Jews, not for Gentiles, not for nobody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He quotes all of these Old Testament scriptures. And then again here in 3.21, he says it again. The just shall live by faith. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So the law and the ceremonies and the civil things never could make us right, could never restore the relationship that we lost in the garden. It's impossible. So he says in these beautiful words, folks, but now, but now we have seen as been manifested. It's a great word in Greek. I won't think. It, it, it means to, to bring it out so that all can see. It's plain. It's nothing hidden anymore. Righteousness of God. And the form of the word is, is uh, what, they mean, uh, what they say is a genitive of source. In other words, God is the source of this righteousness. Not only is He righteous in Himself, not only is this righteousness His, but He's going to transfer it that standing, that status, He's going to move it over to anybody, anyone, who will simply trust the work of Jesus Christ. Just the simplest and feeblest of faith. It will be imputed to them. Now, we're not going to talk about that word imputation for a couple weeks, but there's a... That word in and of itself should just, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like 
You've been going around all your life with filthy rags just covering you. And the stench is, have you ever been with a homeless person? You ever been with somebody that's really been on the street? You can't get too close. It's, it's hard to be around those people. There's a smell of death already. The rags are clinging to them. And it's like God takes, He doesn't change that person into being righteous. That would be impossible. There's only one righteous, and that was His Son. But what He can do is He can take those rags off, and He can scrub down the flesh of that sinner, that homeless wreck, that broken person, He can wash them with the blood of His Son, cleanse them completely to where they are spotless. And then, like the father and the prodigal son, He can throw His robe of righteousness and bestow upon that soul everything that belongs to Him and to His Son. He invests Him with that righteousness. And the effect is this new relationship apart from the law. Well, look at verse 23. Why? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He doesn't let us get too far away from the reality that without this, we would still be... God could look at us and say, Yikes, you need a bath. Where are you going to go? What water is enough to wash away? What soap is strong? What are you going to do if you are not a Christian? This is a question for you. What are you going to do? If there's no God, you have nothing to worry about, folks. If you're, if you're listening on YouTube and you don't believe in God, then uh, when you die, you're just going to go and rot, and that's it, and goodbye, and nothing you did or nothing's going to matter anyway, so don't worry about it. But if there's a God, any kind of God, I don't care what it is or who it is, Those of you who do not believe, you're going to have to reckon with how in the world am I going to make myself acceptable to this God? And basically, you're going to have to do something. Well, he'll just, you know, he, she, it, whatever they are. He'll just like me because I'm a nice person. I do good things and I really have a good heart and I'm sincere. It's just too easy. How sincere? Are you sincere enough? Are you good enough? Is there enough? No. And so in Christianity, we come and we say, God's not just he, she, it, them. It's not just that. God is a person who's invested with this righteousness. It's his, but he's willing to give it to us if we will trust him. And the faith, you don't have to have a lot of it. All you got to do is trust him. And then everything he is comes to you. This is what imputation means. And we'll be talking about it more. So this righteousness of God, let me say three things and then we'll be done. First of all, it is freely given. It is graciously given. Look at verse 24. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of sin. 
There was a penalty. You know, if you uh, get a traffic ticket driving too fast to church because you just can't wait to get here and hear your great pastor and all the glorious sermons. So you get a ticket and you don't pay the ticket. What comes next? A warrant. They send a warrant for your arrest and if you're not at home, they send another warrant and then they start going out and getting wide. The circle gets wider till they get you. But you got to go pay. But we can't pay. God knows we can't pay. And so He offers to pay. God in His grace freely makes us right. That's why we say Jesus. This is where Protestantism uh, and Roman Catholicism diverged, where uh, Protestantism and uh, Eastern Orthodoxy diverge. I was raised Eastern Orthodox. I know what I'm talking about. And this is where authentic Christianity diverges from a lot of Protestantism. And don't make any mistakes. I have been a pastor now in this church 18 and a half years and three years before that in another little church in Florida. And if I sit down with anybody, I don't care how much they tell me, I believe in grace, Jesus alone, faith plus nothing. All I have to do, in fact, it's so easy. All I have to do is just scratch a little bit like that and then things come out. What do you Are you saying that I'm not this or that? Yeah, I'm saying that. And people get mad at me. Are you telling me I have to believe it, that I have nothing to bring? No, you don't have anything. How good do you think you are, really? I mean, we are so self-deluded sometimes, or we make the other mistake. We start to get this, uh, this theology of self-loathing and self-hatred. I am so bad. I'm the worst person. I, there's nobody worse than me. And you grovel and you tell you, you know, there's lots of people worse than you. So when you say that, you're just being prideful. You're deflecting. We are masters of deception, folks. But the one that knows you completely, all the way to the bottom, knows everything about you, all the little secrets. I know because I have some of my own. That Marty V's in the other room, don't anybody tell him. I have my little secrets and nobody knows what they are and I would never tell anybody because I don't trust anybody. But He knows and He loves me. And He does not excuse my sin. He never tells me, it's all right, you're a good guy. No. He points me to this bloody... We, in Protestantism, we have a pretty brass cross. But you know, go in an old church somewhere and it's a wooden cross with a bloody corpse on that cross, dead, bleeding, bled out. You got to look at it. So you don't go to him and say, oh, I'm so sorry for my sin. Oh, you know, poor thing. And he coddles us. No, he points us there and he says, look, reorient your life to this man. And you're clean. It's not easy. It was not easy. It's not cheap. And that brings us to the next thing. Look at verse 25. It's at an infinite cost. It's free. It's graciously given. But it's an infinite cost. There's no way to measure the, the cost of this sacrifice. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice. We talked about this some months ago when Dawson and I did a little series. I think it was around Christmas. 
That word sacrifice in Greek is hilasterion. It means propitiation. It means expiation. Specifically, it means the mercy seat that covered the uh, Ark of the uh, Covenant. And inside were the tablets of the law. And once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would get, they would, they would get two goats and bring them and they'd go, they would cast lots. One goat would be sacrificed and its blood would be taken in to and the, inside the holiest of holy place and the blood would be sprinkled on the top of the uh, ark, on the mercy seat and in front and the other goat The high priest would lay his hands on it and pronounce all the sins of the people of all Israel and that goat would be sent out into the wilderness to die. And this is what... Paul knows all about this, folks. He's a rabbi. He knows more about it than we could ever imagine. And he says, this is our Savior. This is our mercy seat. This this is His blood. What in the world would you want to... Why would you want to come to God with anything other than that? Why would you mention that plus something else? Which is what most religion does. You know, the Pharisees and the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Church, none of them preach salvation by works. You know that, right? Even a Pharisee didn't believe in salvation by works. It was always... Salvation by works plus something, or by grace of God plus something. It was always us helping Him along, not Him doing it all for me. Because that's scary. Oh, He's doing it all for me. Well, I guess I don't have to do anything. Paul's going to put that thing to death in verse 31. He just says it plainly. Puts it to death. That's crazy thinking. But we... Look, folks, we are great at wiggling out of our sins. Jesus becomes the infinite cost. And finally, what is this righteousness? Look at 26. Uh, um, 20, I think it ends at 26. Let's see. Yeah, 20, it's not 27. We're going to look at 27 through 31 next. But it's what Horatius Bonar calls an everlasting righteousness. And everlasting. In other words, it doesn't come and then something happens and gets in its way and interrupts it like a serpent in a garden who beguiles a woman and whose husband is so wimpy that he just stands by silently and they take and eat How easy it was for them to take and eat. How hard it's undoing. It's everlasting righteousness. It's invincible. It can't be touched by the serpent in the garden Because when, and Paul's going to talk about this in two chapters, when the second Adam arrives and he goes in to the garden of Gethsemane with the serpent, with the same pressure that our original parents 
the same pre- more pressure than they had. His, he was sweating drops of blood. He was on his knees begging his father not to not to make him go through. He was begging him not to do it. Please, if there's another way. And he takes the cup and he drinks it. And when he does, he crushes the serpent's head. It's invincible, the righteousness you have. It can never be touched by any failure, any stain, any sin, any failure. Nothing that you could possibly do can touch it. It can't weaken it. Every time you turn to God and you say, I messed up, He is, before you even get there, He's running out the door to get you, to come to you, to love you. He, did, he loves this world. Otherwise, He wouldn't have sent His Son. This sacrifice, look at the verse, shows God as being fair when He held back punishment from those in sin and time. For He was looking ahead he, he was taking all of time. He was. This is not some new New Testament thing. This applied to everybody. It applied, folks, to Adam and Eve. All he asked them was to trust him. That's all. Just trust me. Will you do that? Stay away from the tree. You can have everything else. Just trust me. He told Noah, trust me. Build this boat. I'm going to flood the earth. Will you trust me? Yes, I do. Okay. Build the boat. He told Abraham, will you trust me? I'm going to make you the father of many names. Will you trust me? Abraham believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness. That's chapter 4 of Romans. That's next. Do you see it? Can you see what God has done for his people? God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair And He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. He becomes both just and justifier. Now why in the world would He do that? His love, folks, the only way I can explain it is this, very simply, and I'll close. Listen, His love is so of a different kind than anything that you can imagine. It is so beyond, infinitely beyond what we think of as love. It's so beyond that that He just gathers up all that just and justifying judgment and sin and hell and death and the grave. and He just gathers it all up and He brings it into Himself. He brings it in so close that His Son, His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased, His Son takes it like a cup and drinks it down to its dregs. He drinks every last drop. Drinks it down. All of that so that we can never mess it up again. So that we are secure in Him for all time and eternity. I'm going to quote again from Horatius Bonar. I just read it again last night. We are bought with a price that we may be new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven that we may be like 
Him who forgives us. We are set at liberty, brought out of prison, that we may be holy. The free and boundless love of God pouring itself into us expands and elevates our whole being. And we serve Him. Listen. We serve Him not in order to win His favor. Because we already have that favor. Already won for us. By someone else. Simply believing His record concerning His Son. If you do that, forgiveness, I have trouble forgiving people. When this starts to sink down, you can't, you will want to forgive. Maybe hard, but you'll want to. You want to love other people? You want to be holy? You want to be uh, more circumspect about the way your life is separate from those around you? You can only get there by seeing that it's been given you by the Father through the work of His Son. Not your work. Not your person. Not you. Him. And so, my Twitter handle is run to Jesus. I know. For me, that road has been trod. It's well-worn. And when I don't go, I know why I don't go. Because I still want it to be about me. God help us. Will you trust Him? Father, we thank You for this Word. I pray that it will free everyone who hears it from the burden. Christianity was not meant to be a burden. It was meant to be light and joyous and happy and gracious. Not so we wouldn't go through struggles, but so we'd have some way to handle them when they come. Father, help us, please. And as we come to your table today, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.